The reading is uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And that's right in the middle of the Bible. Uh, in the church Bibles, it's page 670. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Well, if you've got that passage open, why don't you turn back to it and have a look at verse 1. Because we're introduced to the teacher. We don't know huge amounts about the teacher, but we know that he was a king. We know that he was a king in Jerusalem. And he's addressing a kind of crowd or assembly. So there's some sort of gathering. And here is a man of authority who's reflected on life and he is teaching the people who are with him. And it's a really bizarre book because it starts off right at the beginning by shooting itself in the foot. By saying, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's the kind of book that could have been written by Eeyore. You know Eeyore, who uh, sits in his gloomy place, who famously said this, could be worse, not sure how, but it could be. What is this book doing? Because right at the beginning it tells us everything is meaningless, indeed Meaningless maybe even that the writer bothered to write these words. Meaningless that they're in the Bible. Meaningless that we read them. Meaningless I've spent time preparing to help us understand them. What's the point of it all? But I think actually as we journey through this book together, we'll see that the writer is not so much a pessimist, a kind of jug half empty person, but actually more of a realist. Someone who has grappled with life and is continuing to grapple with life and can't always make much sense of it all. That's certainly me, and I'm sure it's many of you. So I hope it will help us. Now here's a little uh, 
illustration to help us with it. Hope it's going to work. There we go. Uh, if you're listening to this recording, I've just turned on a little bubble machine and we're firing bubbles out across the congregation. Now, if you can reach these bubbles, I'd love you to take hold of one. Reach out and touch a bubble. Because the word in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, isn't meaningless in the sense that you and I are thinking it. Meaningless, the word meaningless in Ecclesiastes is much more like these bubbles. Um, it's the idea of vanity or breathiness. You know on a cold morning when you go out and your hot breath hits the cold air and it condenses and you see your breath. It's there, but it's gone. And for those of you who can reach these bubbles and are now getting soaked by them, if you reach out... And grab hold of a bubble. It's there. These are real bubbles. And I grab it. And it's gone. And that is exactly what the writer means in Ecclesiastes when he talks about meaningless. The word could literally be translated vapor. It's there. I grab hold of it. And it's gone. And that word meaningless comes 38 times in Ecclesiastes. And that's half of the uses in the entire Old Testament. So this is a real Eeyore book focusing on meaninglessness. But every time you read that word, think bubbles. I'll turn it off in a minute. Okay. The bubbles are there. They're real. I grab hold of them and they're gone. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. I'll show you a couple of examples in the Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, one of the psalmists says, You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. It's exactly the same word, meaningless, in Ecclesiastes. It's just been translated differently. Interestingly, here's an example. In the New Testament, it's the same word again, but translated into the Greek language. In that famous passage in Romans chapter 8, for the creation was subjected to frustration. It's the same word in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, vapor, mist. So what is going on with all of this? Well, I said earlier that I think Ecclesiastes presents us with a kind of uh, unique perspective on our lives. And I want to help us to see why. And not long ago, I took a wedding here in the church a few weeks ago, and we had a tea next door. And I was chatting to a guy, really interesting bloke from Germany. And he would have described himself as a humanist. Uh, Humanists are people for whom they believe that life is what they see in front of them. There's no God, and life ends when you die. So the idea is we're inherently good people and we need to squeeze as much pleasure and do as much good in our lives as we can because that's all there is. Uh, It's a popular worldview. A lot of people would describe themselves as humanists. Well, as we got talking, he asked me what I did for a living. Um, I don't think he was hugely interested. I asked him what he did for a living. And then he said to me, he's got a philosophy which he lives his life by. And he seemed quite proud of this philosophy. So I was waiting for something really powerful. And I must admit, it was a bit of an anticlimax. But he did believe this. He said to me, His motto he lives his life with is this. Life is a game. Everyone loses. So play the game. Now, he was really proud of this phrase. I was quite saddened by it. But for him, that was exactly it. It was this humanist thinking, this life is all there is. It's a bit of a game. We win, we lose, but ultimately we all lose. So just play the game. Because we're all going to end in the grave and that will be the end of it all. And it was actually really sad going away and reflecting on that phrase. I was grateful that he gave me a great phrase I might better use in a talk. But I was sad that this is the way that he would choose to live his life. But his problem was this. That for so many people in the world, our horizons are like this. We look left and right. And all we think life is about is what I can see and what I can feel and what I can touch and what I can understand. That's all there is. 
But the problem with that humanistic worldview is exactly the problem of these bubbles. That if this is all there is, if all, I, all that there is is what I can experience, what I can understand, I will go through my life grabbing hold of bubbles, as it were, for my meaning, my identity, my purpose. And as soon as I grab them, they'll go. And I'll still be asking the same questions afterwards. So what this writer does is he challenges the myth of our human autonomy, that we can be the center of our lives, and it's okay. He challenges the myth of self-sufficiency. A little later on in the book, in chapter 6, he asks the question, who knows what is good for man, and who knows the future? And then he answers that question in chapter 11, where he says to the people he's addressing, you do not know. It's very, very challenging the way he says it. So I want to go on to show us why. Now, I know that's a sort of long introduction, but I'm trying to help us to get into this book. We're going to look at it for another four weeks after this one. But with that context in place, I hope that we'll begin to grasp something of what the writer is trying to do as he speaks. So we're just going to look at three things. The first one is this. The writer expresses a real frustration because he kind of says, I can't make sense of it all. I can't make sense of my life, not when I stop and really think about it. So let's have a look together at the passage. He asked the question, verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Now that word gain is a key word that comes up time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that little phrase, under the sun, is describing life lived in this world without reference to God. So what do I gain by living my life in this world without reference to God, he says. And he's observing the world that he has witnessed, the world that he lives in. And look what he says, verse 4. Generations come, generations go. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets. And it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. So the writer is observing these kind of circular patterns within the natural world that seem to go on forever and ever and ever, but without any apparent directional purpose. And that is why he asked that question in verse 3. What is the point of all my labor in such a world? If the world is just these endless cycles that don't seem to really be going anywhere, but just keep on going. Man, maybe my life is just like that too. Just an endless cycle that will keep on going until it ends. What's the point of that too? And so he's really puzzled. That's why I asked you the question at the beginning. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Because if you stop and think about it, if the natural world is just doing what it does without any apparent purpose, and perhaps you're part of the natural world, then you could ask yourself, there's not a good reason for me to get out of bed in the morning. Because I'm just part of an endless cycle. It's one day going to come to an end, and it's pretty pointless. It's a puzzling book, isn't it? The writer's almost playing with us as a, a hearer. Uh, but let's read on. Verse 8. He says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. The eye never has enough of hearing. So he's saying, look, there's so much to observe with our senses in the world. But even when I stop and I breathe in through my senses, everything I see, I still can't make sense of it all. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anyone who can say, look, there's something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. 
He's just kind of saying, look, everything's the same. Don't expect much out of life and don't expect much to change. And here's the thing that really challenges us. No one, verse 11, remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow him. Here he's drawing comparison between these endless cycles in the world that apparently don't seem to be going anywhere. And he says, and you think about the endless cycle of the generations. Maybe they're all just the same. I'll prove it to you. Do you know the name of your great-grandfather? Some of you will. Do you know the name of your great-great-grandfather? Your great-great-great-grandfather? It wouldn't take long before you wouldn't have a clue. This would have been really provocative to write in that culture because in that culture there was a big emphasis on monument, on inscriptions, on remembering. Just like there is in our culture, on remembering. And it's a good thing. But even in a culture that's obsessed with remembering, we so quickly forget And if you don't know the name of your great-great-grandfather, it's a case in point. Verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. This burden of trying to make sense of the purpose of my life. What is it all about? And then he says, verse 14, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun... All of them are meaningless, breathy, vapor, bubbles, a chasing after the wind. And here's the reason why. He says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. That word crooked there isn't crooked as in bad. It's crooked as in mysterious. It's the writer saying, I'm living in this world and it's not as I want it to be. Not all of it. It frustrates me. I don't always understand it. But here's the thing that really frustrates me about a frustrating world. I can't do anything about it. There's many things in our life we enjoy. But if you stop and think about the things you don't enjoy that you want to change. It will frustrate you because you've got very, very little control over it. And that's exactly what the writer is saying. He's saying there is something fundamentally wrong with our world. But I cannot fix it. And it bugs me and it frustrates me. And it's like bubbles and I grab and hold for meaning and purpose. And it still doesn't seem to work. So verse 16, he says, look, I said to myself, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. He's not arrogantly bragging. He's just saying, I really did consciously sit down to think about the purpose of life. If anyone should be able to make sense of life, perhaps it's me. But his conclusion is, even when, verse 17, I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also to uh, madness and folly, I learned this too is a chasing after the wind. Why? Because with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So here's a guy who's saying, look, I could seek to live my life with wisdom, but I still experience frustration and suffering and pain. The alternative would be just to live a life of folly. But I still experience frustration and difficulty and pain. So he's going, so what do I do? Because whichever way I turn, I still experience frustration. Are you beginning to get into this puzzling book? It's not easy, is it? It's playing with us, but very deliberately. 
So the writer is saying, and he's drawing us to say as well, we can't make sense of it all. But here's the incredible truth that you begin to see later on in the book, and we'll see particularly in our final week, in week five. The great truth is God can make sense of our world. We read in chapter three, God has set eternity in the hearts of mankind. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God does it so that mankind will revere him. One of the things that's really hard to see is that actually the frustration that you experience in your life, the desire to change a broken world, is actually a frustration that God himself has inflicted on our world in judgment. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where mankind wanted to set themselves up against God to live autonomous, self-sufficient lives. And in judgment, he frustrated our world. And we get caught up in this broken, fragmented, fractured world. Our hearts are at the root of the problem. Romans chapter 8 says, God subjected creation to frustration. And this is where the bubble illustration comes in. Because as we experience this frustration and fractured living, which we long to change, no matter how much we seek meaning in our life of bubbles... As much as we seek to find our identity in a broken world, and as much as we seek to change the brokenness which we hate, none of us actually have any control over any of it. So the reason the writer is able to say life is meaningless, it's like the mist, it's like a bubble, is if you live your life without reference to God, it will be like grabbing hold of something for your identity and meaning, which was never created to give you identity and meaning, And you'll open your hand and it'll be gone. It just won't work. Which is why towards the end of the book, and we will see this in week five, the writer wants to stretch us, not just from the horizontal, what I see and what I understand is all there is, but actually say, look up. Because there's another dimension that will add a whole new set of meanings to your life and help you to understand your life. And the writer's going to go on to say that that vertical dimension, which he is inviting us to be drawn into, is a relationship with the living God. A God who wants to give you meaning, who created you for meaning. A God who doesn't want us to go through our life searching for our identity and our meaning and our purpose, but a God who gives it to us. A God who says, your life doesn't need to be grabbing hold of bubbles which then disappear. I will give you your identity. I love you. I created you for a purpose. And even if you don't realize it, The purpose for which you were created is to know me and to enjoy me. Which means that actually for the vast majority of the world who don't know God, the problem is they don't understand who God is and they don't actually understand who they are. And perhaps that's you this morning. Because God wants you to know who you are. He doesn't want you to feel like you have to go through your whole life creating meaning and identity for yourself. He's a God who loves you And gives you your meaning and identity. Who loves me and gives me my meaning and identity. And that is a wonderful thing. So even though I live in a world where I get frustrated and I can't grasp the purpose of it all. I can have complete confidence that God does. But here's the final thing we're going to look at. And this will really frustrate you. Even with a God-given perspective. I still can't make perfect sense of it all. 
It's not that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and suddenly life all makes sense. Suddenly everything in life works. Indeed, a lot of things may go wrong. And that's a frustration. But we're going to come to see why it's still worth having a God-given perspective and having him at the center of our life, even in the midst of the frustration that we don't understand. Just a couple of verses from the book of Romans as we pull things together. Let me read these. These will be familiar verses to you. But the Apostle Paul is picking up the same themes of Ecclesiastes. And he says this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he's saying you're living in a broken, frustrated world. It doesn't always have to be like that. One day that will be removed. And he says the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. People who have put their trust in Christ and belong to God. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. God in judgment, judging us for our desire to be autonomous and self-sufficient. But here's the thing. He did it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That is the Christian hope. And it's the hope that the gospel gives us. It offers us a unique perspective because in spite of the frustration of our world, we can have confidence that actually God himself subjected our world to frustration, promising that one day he would prevent, he would stop that and bring an end to it all. And this will ultimately be when Jesus Christ returns to make all things new. That is the hope that we believe as Christians. Now maybe you're asking the obvious question, well why doesn't he just do it now? Then we wouldn't have to look at this frustrating book. We wouldn't have to grapple with these difficulties in our life. Well one of the answers to that question is that he wants to give us all more time to respond to him. He doesn't want us to face eternity under his judgment because we don't know him and because we are seeking to be autonomous and self-sufficient. He wants to give us meaning now both because of where it will lead in the future, but also because he wants us to live in a frustrated, broken world now, but with hope, where we seek to find our identity and meaning, not in bubbles that will pop the second I grab hold of them, but in him. I don't believe that there's any other worldview or religion or philosophy that offers that same hope. I know that's a provocative thing to say, but I don't. I've looked at a lot of other worldviews and religions and philosophies and they don't offer this hope. And that is why the Christian gospel is so wonderful. Because God is saying, yes, you live in a broken, fractured, frustrated world. Yes, you're part of the problem because your heart is broken and fractured and frustrated too. But I don't want you to go through your life grabbing hold of things for your meaning, identity and purpose, which will never satisfy you. You are my children and I want to give you your identity. I want to give you your purpose. I want to give you your meaning. And that is why a couple of verses later in Romans 8, he says this. In this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Friends, God has set eternity in our hearts. And that longing that you and I have for a better world is ultimately a longing for God. And through Jesus Christ, you can know God for yourself.
I pray this will be a really helpful series as we look at some really practical things in the weeks ahead and begin to look more deeply at this wonderful book together. Well, as Sally and the band come up, let me pray. Uh, My real plea for you is please don't leave here more frustrated than when you came in. It is a frustrating, difficult book. It's deliberately trying to provoke us to think about big questions. Um, But if you've come along today and something's bothered you, maybe even if you've come along and you didn't realize that the purpose for your life was to know God and you want that to be your purpose, then I really encourage you to come and have a word um, with myself or someone you came with. Um, There'll also be a team in the pastor's office who can pray with you if you want a bit of privacy just to pray or talk with someone. But I'd really urge you and encourage you not to leave here without continuing to think about these great things because they are completely life-changing. God has set eternity in our hearts and our longing for a better world is ultimately a longing for God. So should we pray as we close? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you know each one of us, that you love us. Thank you that as the psalmist writes, you knitted each of us together in our mother's womb. We are wonderfully and fearfully made. Thank you, Father, that life is not an accident. Thank you, too, that this life is not all that there is. And I pray that you would encourage each of our hearts that you are a God who gives meaning and identity and purpose to us in a broken world. Please forgive us where we seek that meaning and identity in things that you created, even good things, but never things that were designed to be our identity. Thank you that you created us for a relationship with you and it's when we know you and when we walk with you at the centre of our lives that we are most free, most liberated to enjoy you and enjoy our world. So Father, thank you for what we've been able to learn together. Help us to continue to help each other as we grapple with some of the complexities in this book. And please would we leave here today encouraged that you are a God who gives us meaning and we thank you that we can know you through the work of Jesus Christ in our place. Amen.